Luke chapter 17. Let's pray before we begin. Lord, we thank You, truly Father, for the blessing of being here this morning. I look around, I see several people who flew in with me last night, and, and they, they got up and they came this morning. And, and it's just, Father, it's because of You. And it is a testimony that we want to be where Your Word is taught. We want to be where You're worshipped. We want to be with people who, who love You and, and praise You. We, we want this, Lord, we need this. And I, I'm just so thankful for this gathering this morning. I thank You for the church. You and your wisdom, Father, saw beyond the sin and the frailty and the, the failures of man and saw a way to truly lift us up towards you and to bring us near to you. And I'm so thankful for that. I pray for the church and the world, Father, that, that we will be more discerning as a people. For as your word says, once we were not a people, but now we are a people. Once we had not obtained mercy, but now we have mercy. And because we belong to You, Father, we are are so blessed and we have such a task before us until You come. I pray that the message of the Gospel would be borne on the shoulders of the church by the power of Your Holy Spirit and that until Jesus, until You come back, we would be proclaiming this great truth. Pray, Father, You would pour more truth into our hearts this morning and fill us up with the knowledge of Jesus Christ and truly, Father, the passion in our spirits to be Your people. Teach us now, we pray, Holy Spirit, in Jesus' name. Amen. Luke 17, verse 22. And He said to the disciples, The days will come when you will long to see one of the days of the Son of Man, and you will not see it. And they will say to you, Look there! Look here! Do not go away and do not run after them. For just like the lightning, when it flashes out of one part of the sky and shines to the other part of the sky, so will the Son of Man be in His day. But first, He must suffer many things and be rejected by this generation. And as it happened in the days of Noah, so it will also be in the days of the Son of Man. They were eating, they were drinking, they were marrying, they were being given in marriage until the day that Noah entered the ark and the flood came and destroyed them all. It was the same as happened in the days of Lot. They were eating, they were drinking, they were buying, they were selling, they were planting, they were building. But on the day that Lot went out from Sodom, it rained fire and brimstone from heaven and destroyed them all. It will be just the same on the day that the Son of Man, note this, is revealed. On that day, the one who is on the housetop and whose goods are in the house must not go down to take them out. And likewise, the one who is in the field must not turn back. Remember Lot's wife. Whoever seeks to keep his life will lose it. Whoever loses his life will preserve it. I tell you, on that that night there will be two in one bed. One will be taken and the other will be left. There will be two women grinding at the same place. One will be taken, the other will be left. Two men will be in the field. One will be taken, the other will be left. And answering, they said to him, Where, Lord? And he said to them, Where the body is, there also the vultures will be gathered. What do vultures and Lot and Noah have in common? What do they have to do with each other? We come to this passage, and and this along with sections out of Matthew 24 and other places in Scripture, Jesus says these things, but, but it seems so disconnected at times. It seems so mysterious, so esoteric. And so unfortunately, a lot of people take it that way. 
They just figure Jesus is off teaching some weird spiritual plane and we're just not meant to understand. Anytime someone says to me, well, I don't think we're meant to understand that, my response is, then why did He write it? Why did He give it to us? What we have in His Word, we have because He wants us to understand. Because He is bringing revelation. We have two men that Jesus refers to here, Noah and Lot. And according to Genesis uh, 9.28 and Genesis 11, uh, verses 10-32, through 32, we can know genealogically there's about 300 years between Noah and Lot. 300 years from the flood and from Noah's survival in the flood and his family to a man named Lot who is the nephew of Abraham. And as a matter of fact, because Noah lived about 350 years after the flood, he was probably on earth at the same time as Lot. And that's something that we misunderstand when we go back and look at the genealogies, how long people lived and how many of their lives crossed over. That Abraham would have either known or at least known of Noah. That the whole world would have known of Noah and the ark and the true story, not Russell Crowe's version. Not some rabid environmentalism that caused the flood. We'll talk about that another time. (laughs) But Lot was born before Noah died. These two men, as Jesus refers to them, have some amazing parallels in their situations. One global, the other more limited in terms of geography, but both of them in rescue situations, you could say. And both of these two guys are amazing parallels for God's parallel plan in the world. What are you talking about, Rick? I'm talking about His plan for Israel and His plan for the church. And they don't cancel one out. The church does not cancel out Israel. Israel doesn't supersede the church. God is functioning and working out. The Bible is very clear on this. We've been talking about this for ten years. Two simultaneous plans. One plan for Israel. One plan which we see in the church. One plan limited to His people, the Jews. The other plan open to anyone who would come to faith in Jesus Christ. And He is working both of these plans out. And we have seen it. Oh, I've got so much to tell you. Now, the last couple of weeks' experience in the land. It's going to have to wait. We're not going to get into it this morning because it was too much. (laughs) But no matter how much you think you might know, (laughs) Jesus gives us a lot to take in. I think I wrote that somewhere between Tel Aviv and Philadelphia. (laughs) This is discipleship training for us. Thank you. It shows. This is the kind of reception I get. (laughs) Jesus gives us much to think about. And there is so much in here that if we take the time to read it, and just go verse by verse through it, and that's all we're going to do this morning, take these verses one at a time and seek to understand what Jesus was saying. This is discipleship training for us. And that's the first thing to notice as we enter into verse 22. He said to the disciples. And always pay attention to that. Because there are times when Jesus is speaking to the mass crowds. There are times Jesus is speaking to the Pharisees and the Sadducees and the Jewish leaders. There are times He's speaking to non-believers altogether. And there are times when He's speaking to disciples. And this is discipleship training. Jesus is speaking to those who are with Him. Those who believe. We had just left the southern steps of the Temple Mount, had Bible study up there. We had studied Matthew 24. It's a beautiful, great place to do it. The sun was shining, finally, on the tour. And as we walked out of there, having read through Matthew 24 and Jesus' discussion, uh, in the Olivet Discourse, 
And all the things that he shared with his disciples there, Harlan Miles came up to me and Harlan said, Rick, I'm just curious. Who are the disciples that are mentioned here? Who are these disciples that he's talking about? Because it doesn't say apostles, it says disciples. And you know, disciples are anyone who follows Jesus. Apostles were the twelve. The, the, the specific guys that he, that he called, but disciples could be anybody. And it says that he was talking to the disciples, so perhaps it was just the twelve. They would qualify as disciples too. Or maybe it was the twelve and three or four others, or maybe 150 people. I don't know specifically in that. But Harlan's question was great. Who are the disciples in Matthew 24? Then he pressed me on it. And I, I thought about that, and I looked at the passage again, and I said, you know, if you think about it, Matthew 24 was not applicable to them. What Jesus talked about, with the exception that you would not find one stone left upon another, which is the first thing he said, and then they ask him a question about the end of the age, and he begins to answer about the end of the age, which was not their age. It wasn't about them. It wasn't immediately applicable to them. Who are the disciples Jesus was talking to in Matthew 24? Us. And those who will believe in Jesus who are alive at the end of the age. Those truly who are going to believe in Jesus at that time of tribulation. Because they're going to need the information about, don't, don't, if you're up on the house, don't go inside and grab your coat. You just run. Who's He talking to? The disciples. And the truth is, the application of Jesus' teaching in that day far surpassed the lifetime of the twelve by at least 2,000 years. Because these things have yet to happen. Same in this passage. And he said to the disciples, So disciples, listen up. He's speaking to you. He's speaking to me. The days will come when you will long to see one of the days of the Son of Man and you will not see it. So disciples of Christ, how many long to see His days? How many of you would just, man, if I could just see one of His days. And that's backward or forward. When we're walking through the land, walking by the Galilee, there's just something in, in, in my heart that says, I, I wish I was here. You know, I would love to be transported back 2,000 years. I wish I could stand there in the synagogue in Chorazin and actually listen to Jesus teach rather than look at the ruins. You know, the ruins are fantastic. It's amazing to think, wow, Jesus taught right here. But to be there, oh, I long to see one of those days. Much more, I long to see just one of the days of His coming. Long to, to be with Him. And that truly is. And I know we talk about this a lot. I get it. But so does Jesus. In fact, if you're going through this and you're going, wow, but Rick, we've heard some of this end time stuff. You go there all the time. That's because Jesus goes there all the time. That's because the Scriptures go there all the time. Thinking about that again last night as I, as I drifted off into La La Land. Just thinking, man, Jesus talks about His coming over and over. We have covered this stuff. And he even fell asleep saying, Lord, are we to cover this again tomorrow? And his response was, I don't know, because I fell asleep. <laughs> but this is the stuff of our, of our passion. This is what keeps us awake. This is what keeps us sober in these days. Knowing that He's coming, focusing on His coming, being aware of the signs of His coming, and He gives us several of them right here. I remind you what Paul wrote. And this to me has become something of a life verse. 2 Timothy 4.8 In the future there is laid up for me the crown of righteousness, which the Lord the righteous judge will award to me on that day. And not only to me, but also to all who have loved His appearing. 
So disciples, we are called to love His appearing, to long to see just one of the days of the Lord, knowing that He has blessed us by His grace to see an eternity of the days of the Lord. Well, verse 23, they will say to you, Look there, look here, do not go away and do not run after them. For just like the lightning when it flashes out of one part of the sky shines to the other part of the sky, so will the Son of Man be in His day. Deception. A huge sign that we are near the end. And Jesus says there will be plenty of false deceivers out there. Lots of false Christs. Lots who would take on that that Hebrew name of Mashiach. I am Messiah, they would say. And Jesus says, don't you listen to them. Charles Feinberg tells us that Judaism has seen more than 64 false messiahs since Jesus' day. Those who literally stand up and say, I am the Messiah of the Hebrew Scriptures. That that doesn't even include the David Koresh's and the Jim Jones and the Sun Young Moon's and all the bizarreties in our age of people standing up saying, come this way or go that way or follow me here or follow me there. And Jesus says, don't go. There will be certain deception in the last days. Which kind of raises the question, how can we know? How can we know that it truly is Jesus and not a false and not a false Messiah, a false prophet? Well, check this out. He says very clearly, He's going to come like lightning. Now, in Matthew 24, He refers to as the lightning flashes from the east across the sky to the west. And so we look at that and say, oh, okay, see, he's talking about the coming of the Son of Man. Ezekiel says so. The other prophets imply that the Son of Man is going to come from the east and make his way across across from the Mount of Olives on the east into the temple west of there. But here Luke doesn't say anything about east or west. He just says, just like the lightning, or Jesus says, just like the lightning when it flashes out of one part of the sky shines to the other part of the sky, so will the Son of Man be in His day. What does that mean? It means it will be instantaneous. And don't miss this. Like the rapture of the church, 1 Corinthians 15.52 says, in a moment, in the twinkling of an eye, at the last trumpet, the trumpet will sound, the dead will be raised imperishable, and we will be changed. And that's the rapture of the church. It'll happen so fast, we won't even know it's happened until we're with Him. Suddenly we're in the presence of Jesus, and we won't be thinking, wow, that was quite a ride. There's not enough time. <laughs> it's so quick. Listen, don't miss that this is the same as the coming of the Son of Man. The rapture and the second coming are two events. Okay, the rapture is when He calls the church to meet Him in the clouds, and so we will ever be with the Lord, 1 Thessalonians 4, 16 and 17. The second coming of Jesus is where He sets foot on the Mount of Olives, Zechariah 14 tells us. Two different events. But He says when He comes in His second coming, He will come like lightning. In other words, He's not going to come in, set up shop, gather a following, and begin to lure and draw big crowds over a span of time. When Messiah comes the second time, it'll be like that, and He's here. And no one will have any question but that He is the Messiah. So if someone comes along, and wow, they're a great teacher, they've got you know charisma, and all of a sudden they're doing miracles, and, and, and they're garnering a following, and we see, wow, everybody's going after this guy. It's not the Messiah, because the Messiah comes like lightning. Not over a span of time developing His following. It won't, listen, it won't be a movement. It will be a moment. 
And that's the coming of the Son of Man. Like a lightning flash, He comes to rule and to reign. Verse 25. But first, He must suffer many things and be rejected by this generation. Genea in the Greek. This generation, it means an age, a generation, a span of time, but it also means, and I think specifically here means a people group. He must first be rejected by this people. The Genea of Israel who rejected Him. Messiah must come and be rejected by His own. Keep your finger there and go back to a familiar passage, Isaiah 66. Isaiah 66. When we began the first day of our extension tour, we, there were about 13 of us who stayed four extra days in Israel after the main tour was over. And we, we traveled and saw various sites um, of modern Israel. That is Israel 1948 all the way up to present. The tour we typically take, we go back in time, we go back 4,000 years. We see places Abraham walked all the way up through Jesus walking and, and up. But 1948 to present, so we saw some amazing things. But we opened up this passage, and it's kind of the go-to passage when you think about Israel in the present day. The fulfillment of prophecy in the present day. But look closely at this. Two things to note here. It says in Isaiah 66, verse 7, Before she, the she here is Israel, before she travailed, or travailed, she brought forth. Before her pain came, she gave birth to a boy. Now, when we studied Isaiah, we talked about that's that's just weird. That's not how it happens. Okay, women don't give birth and then go into birth pangs. <laughs> the birth pangs lead up to the birth, and then there's a birth. But the prophet says here, before the pain, she gave birth to a boy. Now, if we lay that over history, we know exactly what he's talking about. The boy is Jesus. Before the casting out, before the diaspora, before the pain and the pogroms and, and, the, and the difficulties and the persecutions of Israel, before all that happened, Jesus was born. Because the worst pain of Israel in history has happened since Jesus walked the earth. It's been the last 2,000 years. And so Isaiah was spot on when he said, before her pain came, she gave birth to a boy. And he says, who has seen, heard such a thing? Who has seen such things? Can a land be born in a day? Can a nation be brought forth all at once? Now listen to this. Opposite, as soon as Zion travailed, she also brought forth her sons. Okay, now that's normal. Travail first and then birth. What is he laying out here? Before the travail, a son is born, Jesus. And then she travailed. And then she brought forth many sons. And the bringing forth of those many sons resulted in May 14, 1948, the birth of the modern state of Israel. The greatest prophecy in our generation that we have watched fulfilled before our very eyes. You wonder about this word, all you need to do is go to Isaiah 66. And you have seen what Isaiah prophesied 750 years 2,750 years before it happened. And that is the birth of Israel. And the Lord says, of course, in verse 9, Shall I bring to the point of birth and not give delivery, says the Lord? Or shall I who gives delivery shut the womb? Shall I birth this nation and not deliver it? He's going to deliver it. But this nation first rejected Jesus. The Son was born before the pain. The rejection of Jesus brought about their pain. Had Israel accepted Jesus as Messiah right out of the gate, 
then the last 2,000 years of pain for Israel, for the Jewish people, would not have happened. But the Lord in His vast eternal wisdom knew this is what would happen. And He knew this would also kick wide the door of the Gospel for the Gentiles. And He's worked out this absolutely amazing plan. But ultimately, all of that pain, all of that persecution resulted in Israel's rebirth as a nation, setting up the final days in which we live. So back in Luke 17, Jesus says very clearly, first He, that is the Son of Man Himself, must suffer many things and be rejected by this generation. And now He gets into it, just as it happened in the days of Noah, so it will also be in the days of the Son of Man. They were eating, they were drinking, they were marrying, they were being given in marriage until the day that Noah entered the ark and the flood came and destroyed them all. Okay, what happened? What what led to the flood? Sin, rejection, rebellion. Genesis chapter 6 through Genesis chapter 9. If you want to read that, I would encourage you to read that before you see the uh, the movie Noah. Genesis 6 through 9. Know what you're talking about before you watch the lies of Hollywood. But what led then, if, if rebellion and rejection led to the flood originally in the world, what was it that led to the anti-Semitic flood against all Israel? And I would share with you, it's the same thing. Rejection. Rebellion. The rejection and the rebellion of a people toward their God. And so, a flood of persecution came in. Just as it did in the days of Noah. But note this, just as mankind through Noah was preserved in the ark through the flood, so also Israel will be preserved through the coming flood of tribulation. Two things just to jot down if you're a note taker. Number one, Noah is a picture of Israel. Noah in Jesus' teaching here is a picture in type of Israel. Just as it happened in the days of Noah, so also it will happen in the days of the Son of Man. Noah is a picture. He was a representative remnant of all mankind. Noah and his family. Saved in the flood. In the same way, a representative remnant of all Israel will be saved through the coming flood of tribulation. The prophet Zechariah, chapter 13, verse 8, it will come about, and all the land declares the Lord that two parts in it will be cut off and perish, but the third will be left in it. A third of what? A third of Israel. A third of the Jewish people. And I know this is something we've studied, and, and, and it's come up many times in our studies over the years. It's a difficult passage. Because there are Israelis today who don't like Christians because they think Christians are hot-headed idiots who think that they're all going to be saved and Israel's going to burn. And they think there's a certain arrogance there uh, among Christians. And I come to passages like this, and especially when I'm reading a passage like this and and we have a Jewish tour guide with us, I always kind of go, all right, Lord, it's your truth. I'm just going to throw it out there. And that's the thing to recognize is that this is not my word. It's God's word. But he says, I will bring the third part through the fire. I will refine them as silver is refined. I will test them as gold is tested. And how is that? In the furnace. In the fire. And they will call on my name and I will answer them. I will say they are my people. And they will say, the Lord is my God. I'm going to bring them through, he says. Paul says in Romans 11.26, And so all Israel will be saved. Just as it is written, the Deliverer will come from Zion. He will remove ungodliness from Jacob. Paul's not talking about the Gentiles here, gang. 
The removal of ungodliness from Jacob speaks of Israel. This is my covenant with them when I take away their sins. Paul says, so all Israel will be saved. All Israel? Yes. All Israel. The third part. The surviving remnant. Those who survive through the tribulation. This is not some esoteric spiritualized Israel that Paul is talking about here. It's not the church. And I will say again, the church does not replace Israel. We are in parallel plans according to the Scriptures very clearly. This is not some cult. This third part that is tested and comes through the fire gang, it is the remnant redeemed. It is the third part. It is Israel as a whole coming to faith in Yeshua. Not saved because they're Jews. Any more than I'm saved because I'm a good guy. But saved because of faith in the Mashiach, in Jesus Christ. We always wonder when we go to Israel about our tour guides. Is he a Christian? Is he a closet believer? Because the tour guides are very well trained. Very well trained in Israel. And one can be an absolute atheist and you can spend two weeks with them and have no idea. Because of how well they know the land, they know what happened in different places, they know the scriptures. Roni Winters, best tour guide we've ever had. Phenomenal. We had a great time with him. And the very first day I sat down with him, and I always do this, I say, okay, shoot straight with me, Roni. What, are, are, you a, are you messianic? Are you a believer? Are you a Jew? What, where, where's your faith? And this is before anyone got there. I want to know. And he smiled and he said, he said, he said, Rick, I would say that I am a good Jewish boy. And I said, Roni? And he said, yes. <laughs> this is what Roni did for the whole trip. Anyway, Roni? Yes. I said, well, what does that mean? I, he, and he said, he said, Rick, I know the scriptures. All of them. Hebrew Scriptures, the New Testament, he said, I know the Scriptures. He says, I know up here. But I have come to understand over the years that Christianity is a faith of the heart. And that's all I needed to hear. What are you saying, Roni, my friend? I'm saying, I know. But it's not in my heart. (coughs) So pray for Roni. I am. And we had a lot of great talks over the couple of weeks since then. But this whole idea that there are, and I believe there are massive numbers of Jews, at least a third, who right now are in that place. They know. But it hasn't made its way down into the heart yet. And perhaps there are some of you sitting here this morning like that. You know the truth. You know what's in here. But walking in a relationship with Jesus, talking to God on an ongoing basis, living out a Christian life, eh, I know it, it's good information. But Christianity is a faith of the heart. And if it never gets to the heart, and if there's never any relationship, then you're no different than a good Jewish boy, a good Jewish girl. Someone who knows all the info, but has not received it in the heart. Israel is going to receive it in the heart. And all that knowing is going to seep in. And ultimately, there's going to be a massive outcry. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord will be spoken by the believers of Israel when Jesus comes. So Noah is a picture, a type of Israel saved. Noah went through the flood, but he was saved. 
He experienced the tossing and the turning of the ark, but he was saved. He and his family, eight people, survived. It was a rough go, but they were saved. And so Noah is a picture for Israel. But go on, verse 28. It was the same as happened in the days of Lot. They were eating, they were drinking, they were buying, they were selling, they were planting, they were building. But on that day that Lot went out from Sodom, it rained fire and brimstone from heaven and destroyed them all. It will be just the same on the day that the Son of Man is revealed. In both Noah's day and Lot's day, it was business as usual. And you get that definitely from the passage. Jesus is saying, hey, people are just going to be going about their everyday lives, living in their heads. And faith in the heart is lacking. People are going to be living unprepared. That is a a big sign of the last days. People living unprepared. I hope it's none of us. I hope it's not represented in the church of people living unprepared. But there's a huge difference between these two stories. Again, Noah went through the judgment of the flood, but Lot was saved from the judgment of the fire. God didn't keep Lot in Sodom as the fire blazed all around him, but just cover him up and protect him so he wouldn't get burned. God pulled him out before the fire rained down. You see what I'm saying? As much as Noah is a picture and type of Israel, Lot is a picture and type of the church. Lot portrays the church called out, saved from, not saved through tribulation, but saved from tribulation, as Paul said in 1 Thessalonians 5.9, for God has not destined us for wrath, but for obtaining salvation through Jesus Christ our Lord. Turn over to 2 Peter. 2 Peter chapter 4. I'm sorry, 2 Peter chapter 2. 2 Peter 2. Beginning in verse 4. And as Peter writes, inspired by the Holy Spirit, he gets it. He explains exactly what I'm talking about here. 2 Peter, chapter 2, verse 4. For if God did not spare angels when they sinned, but cast them into hell and committed them to pits of darkness reserved for judgment, and did not spare the ancient world, but preserved Noah a preacher of righteousness with seven others, when he brought up a flood upon the world of the ungodly. And if he condemned the cities of Sodom and Gomorrah to destruction by reducing them to ashes, having made them an example to those who would live ungodly lives thereafter. And, note this in verse 7, if he rescued righteous lots, oppressed by the sensual conduct of unprincipled men, For by what he saw and heard, that righteous man, while living among them, felt his righteous soul tormented day after day by their lawless deeds. Then, verse 9, the Lord knows how to rescue the godly from temptation and to keep the unrighteous under punishment for the day of judgment, and especially those who indulge the flesh in its corrupt desires and despise authority. Noah was a preacher of righteousness, as Peter described him, Lot is called righteous. Well, that's an interesting distinction. Because Israel, down through all of its years in keeping the Hebrew Scriptures, were a people who preached righteousness. Absolutely preachers of righteousness. Righteousness that was understood in the head but didn't really get down into the heart. Lot is called righteous Lot. Now, I I wouldn't have called him that if Scripture hadn't. 
simply guilt by association. Look at where he built his house. He moved into downtown downtown no downtown Sodom. He built his house in the region of Sodom and Gomorrah, in that place that was just crying for judgment, that was so sin sick. And that's where he lived, and yet the Bible calls him righteous Lot. How can the Bible call him righteous Lot? Because, because God credited him with righteousness just like He credited Abraham with righteousness. He wasn't righteous because he was always good, always good, pure of, of life. He was righteous because he had faith. Because he believed the Lord. Well, how do you know he believed the Lord? Because when God said leave, he left. When God said flee, he fled. When God said time to go, Lot packed it up and was out of the city. And so Lot was a believer. He had faith. And what Peter is telling us here is that God knows how to keep and God knows how to rescue. He will keep Israel safe through the tribulation. He will rescue the church beforehand. Before the raining down of fire. Before the tribulation strikes. And again, someone might say, oh, okay, so he's going to rescue the church, but he's going to keep Israel here. Well, that is totally Christian arrogance. Not at all. Because again, my righteousness is not my righteousness. The righteousness that saves me is the same as the righteousness that saved Lot. It's the righteousness that is bought by faith in God's grace. I'm righteous because of Him. And I'm not saved by my church. I've said this before. We're not going to get to heaven and, and, and have a, you know, an alphabetical listing of the churches. Let's see. Uh, Baptist, bridge. I don't find bridge here. Where's bridge? I don't see it on the list. Well, I go to the bridge. Well, I'm a good Catholic. Let's go to the seas. Funny thing is, there is no... The only list God has is the names of people written in the Lamb's Book of Life. How do you get in the Lamb's Book of Life? Faith in God's grace. A relationship with Jesus Christ. It's not my brand that saves me. Boy, you see that all. There's a lot of branding in Israel. You see all kinds of churches and cathedrals built up and branded as the location when we know it's not. I can get into that. I won't right now. There's all kinds of beautiful structures in Israel. That someone came along, like Constantine's mother, and said, I think it happened there. And they built a church. (laughs) Constantine's mom, how did you know? Well, the dice said so. I don't know how she knew. Brands that do not save. Beautiful cathedrals that are not part of your salvation. It is faith in God's grace through Jesus Christ. And God knows how to do that. He knows how to keep those who trust Him. How to rescue them, to pull them out before judgment comes in the same way that He knew how to protect His own Noah and family and Israel going through the flood of tribulation. Well, verse 31, On that day, the one who is on the housetop and whose goods are in the house must not go down to take them out. And likewise, one who is in the field must not turn back. Verse 32, remember Lot's wife. (laughs) There's a t-shirt right there. If there ever was one, remember Lot's wife. Enough said. You know, I'm going to make a sandwich board and just start walking around Oak Harbor and Anacortes. Remember Lot's wife. What is he saying? Man, you don't want to be like Lot's wife. Lot's wife is a picture in type of unbelief. 
And interesting, if Lot is a picture and type of the church, then I would say Lot's wife could be a picture and type of unbelief in the church. Those, oh, I've been there! When was the last time you were in church? Ah, it was the last few years, but I was there! You know, I was involved! Well, was your head involved or was your heart involved? Do you love Jesus from the heart? Or are you keeping the rules by the head? You know? I kind of think Israeli tour guide unbelief is a lot like churchgoer unbelief. Again, knowing it up here. I've got it all down. I've read the scriptures. I've heard the stories. I've been to Sunday school. All that stuff. Got that. But it never gets into the heart. And like so many tour guides, there are so many Christians who sit in church even week after week after week. And they're a lot like Lot's wife. Because they've never come to that faith of relationship. Disciples, remember Lot's wife. What happened? She was pulled out. She was rescued. She was on her way out of the city. But her heart was in the city. Her desire was back there. She turned around and we got salt. She turned around and uh, think about that. She turned into a pillar of salt. What does that mean? It means she was devoid of any water. Kind of like someone who walks without the power of the Holy Spirit. Dry as salt. And so she stood there, <laughs> frozen in time. I've always wondered if... No, I won't say that. <laughs> okay, I wondered if Lot went back and took a little bag and went... <laughs> Just for the journey, girls, you know, a little seasoning. <laughs> Remember... <laughs> Remember Lot's wife. Don't look back to Sodom. Look forward to salvation. It is going to come like lightning. It's going to come in the twinkling of an eye. Verse 33. Whoever seeks to keep his life will lose it. And whoever loses his life will preserve it. And that's the key. You're not trying to establish yourself here. You want to be established there. You're not seeking to save and and, and cover yourself here. You're leaning into Jesus because you know you're going to be there. Don't look back to Sodom. Look forward to salvation. Verse 34. I tell you, on that night, there will be two in one bed. One will be taken, the other will be left. There will be two women grinding at the same place. One will be taken and the other will be left. And two men, verse 36, will be in the field. One will be taken and the other will be left. And I absolutely, unequivocally believe that right here Jesus is talking about the rapture of the church. And as with the debate that that has gone on about the similar passage in Matthew 24... Around verse 40, 41, 42. The same concept, the same uh, discussion has gone on. Well, is it those who are taken are taken off to judgment and those who are left, left for the kingdom? Or is it those who are taken are taken in the rapture and those who are left who are left for judgment? Which one is it? And I believe those who are taken are those who are raptured. The taken refers very specifically to the church of Jesus Christ. Again, 1 Thessalonians 4.16, The Lord Himself will descend from heaven with a shout, with the voice of the archangel, and with the trumpet of God, and the dead in Christ will rise first. And then we who are alive and remain will be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air, and so we shall always be with the Lord. Now, two reasons I believe that this is talking specifically about the rapture. First of all, instantaneously, Jesus will receive us. 
In the twinkling of an eye, as we've said. And the Greek word there is the same Greek word that is used in Matthew 24 for the word taken. And we talked about this, I think, pretty recently, didn't we? The word taken here is paralambano in the Greek. And paralambano means to take with. To receive to yourself. To receive something or someone to yourself. And that's the word that Jesus uses. Back in Matthew 24. In fact, you know what? Let me, let me just read it to you. Matthew 24, verse 41, says two women will be grinding at the mill. One will be taken, paralambano, uh, to take with, and one will be left. Okay. The other word that we talked about is aero, which means to cause to cease, or to be destroyed, or to be ended. And they did not understand until the flood came and took them all away. So will the coming of the Son of Man be. And they say, well, see, they were taken away to judgment. But that word took is aero, which means to cause to cease. They were ceased. They were judged and found wanting and they ceased to exist. But the other word, one will be taken and one will be left. The word taken is very specifically used to receive to yourself. Instantaneously, Jesus is going to receive the church. He's going to take the church to Himself. But, Jesus also indicates something I find very interesting, and Luke's the only one who points this out. He kind of catches something and mentions something here. A little bit more information. Note this again, verse 34. I tell you, on that night, there will be two in one bed. One taken, paralambano. The other will be left. Verse 36, two men will be in the field. Now note this. you got two people in bed at night. And you have two people grinding at the mill. You have two people who are working in the field. What are they working in the field and grinding at the mill at night for? They're not. It's daytime. Simultaneously, there are people who are going to be taken from the field and taken from bed. At the same time, what does that mean? Well, you all were in bed when we were wide awake in Israel. So at the same moment that the church is taken from Oak Harbor, from Anacortes, the church is going to be caught up from Israel. Instantaneously, from all parts of the world, boom, off we go and we're with Jesus in the air. Simultaneously, instantaneously, whatever side of the world we're on, all believers in Jesus will be caught up to Him. And those left will face judgment and tribulation. Which is what follows here. Verse 37. And answering they said to him, Where, Lord? Now, we don't know. What were the disciples asking here? Were they asking where those who are taken are going to go? Or were they asking where those left behind will be judged? We don't know what they were seeking, what answer they were looking for. Where is this going to happen, Lord? But we do know how Jesus interpreted their question. He interpreted it as a question of judgment. Now, are you with me? They may have been asking any manner of question. Where? Where is this going to take place? We're we're confused. Where, Lord? And Jesus answers concerning specifically judgment. He says, where the body is, there the vultures will be gathered. Why does He answer with judgment? Why does He assume the negative in their question? Because He loves them so much. And because He loves you and me so much. For every warning in Scripture about judgment and death and hell and a future separated from God, understand that behind every single statement Jesus makes like that is a heart that is bursting for you and for me. The same heart that causes a parent to look at their child and say, I am warning you if you do that again, you're going to be in big trouble. 
Why would, what a mean dad not to let his son put his hand on the hot grill. Come on. Let your son learn on his own. Okay. I love my kids too much. And so the warnings come from the love. By the way, Jesus' phrase in verse 37 here was apparently a common proverb. A common proverb. Where the body is, there the vultures will be gathered. And it, it means a thing would happen when the necessary conditions were fulfilled. Is the world ripe for the vultures today? Is the world ripe for judgment now? I think we were ripe for judgment about 20 years ago. And I don't mean that judgmentally. I just look around the world and I cannot even believe how bad it is. Tel Aviv. What a beautiful, beautiful place. The Mediterranean glistening blue and green. The beach, the, the sand on the beaches is, is as fine as can be. It's a pleasure to walk down that beach until you start to see the sin. And you start to see the rebellion. They say in Israel that in Jerusalem the Jews go to pray and in Tel Aviv they go to play. And that sounds kind of lighthearted and fun until you start to see some of the depravity that is so obvious in Tel Aviv. It is the number one spot for homosexuality in the Middle East. Tel Aviv, Israel. The largest population of homosexuals is is situated right there. Gay pride parades pushing into Jerusalem in the land of our Lord. And I see that and I just go, well, Rick, you're you're just not accepting of our culture. You're right. I'm not. I don't accept a culture that rejects my God. I love this culture. I love the Jewish people. I love all people. I look around. I see two men walking down the beach holding hands together and my heart goes out. But it's depravity. And it's rejection of the very created order of God. Ironside says, dispensationally, the carcass here, the body where the vultures are gathering, it refers to the putrid mass of false professions centered in Jerusalem in the last days. And when we see that kind of false deception and that kind of depravity taking place in the heart of the land of Israel, gang, the days are short. Where the body is, there also the vultures will be gathered. Morally, Jesus gives a very solemn warning. And it's in line with all the biblical warnings that tell us after grace, judgment will come. After the offer of salvation, once that is rejected, judgment is coming. And literally, this statement here will be fulfilled. Get this, literally, where the body is, there also the vultures will be gathered. Ezekiel chapter 39, verse 4. You will fall on the mountains of Israel, you and all your troops, and all the peoples who are with you. I will give you as food for every kind of predatory bird and beast of the field. Ezekiel 39, 17. As for you, son of man, thus says the Lord God, speak to every kind of bird and to every beast of the field. Assemble and come, gather from every side to my sacrifice, which I'm going to sacrifice for you as a great sacrifice on the mountains of Israel that you may eat flesh and drink blood. An invitation to the carrion birds to come and to feed. And did you know, and someone brought this up at the very beginning of our tour, asked me, have you heard anything about... Predatory birds or, or uh, carrion birds growing in numbers in Israel. Have you heard that? I'm like, 
no, I hadn't. So I started poking around and asking questions. Israel is right now inviting an increase of large carnivorous carrion feeding birds in massive numbers. And it's a little stunning. They're also inviting cats, but let's not talk about that. (laughs) In 2004, Israel began what they called Porsim Kanaf. Porsim Kanaf, which means spreading wings. Spreading wings was an attempt by the Israelis in recognition that there were certain uh, migratory birds that would pass through Israel. Vultures, eagles of, of different sorts that would pass through were getting less and less and less in number. And because, of course, it's mankind's job to save the animal kingdom, they began to set up nesting and feeding stations to invite these birds to come in where they could care for them and and increase their number. And so from the Golan Heights all the way down to the Negev, there are 20 feeding and nesting centers in Israel for carrion birds. Only 20? Well, that's not too big for a nation. It is if the nation's the size of New Jersey... If I told you that in New Jersey they've set up 20 feeding and nesting stations for carrion birds, what would you say? Well, that's going to draw a lot of predators. That's going to draw a lot of vultures, isn't it? And right now, 34 species are counted in Israel, growing massively, and number one is the eagle or vulture. Revelation 19.17 says, Then I saw an angel standing in the sun, and he cried out with a loud voice, saying, Do all the birds which fly in midheaven come assemble for the great supper of God, so that you may eat the flesh of kings and the flesh of commanders and the flesh of mighty men and the flesh of horses and of those who sit on them and the flesh of all men, both free men and slaves and small and great. It is sober, it is unsettling, but it is true that the, the battle of Har-Megeddo, Armageddon, is going to result in massive carnage, and the Lord will say, Come predatory birds, have your feast. It's going to come suddenly. And just as Jesus very specifically and literally uh, prophesied, the eagles and vultures will gather at the feast of carnal man. But praise the Lord that He's telling us this now. This isn't something that after the fact He goes, well, I, you know, I would have told you, but you know, I, I was busy doing other stuff. Before the fact, the Lord says, Warning. This is what's coming. And you have a choice of where to be. Standing with the Son of Man, returning with Jesus the King, saved for all eternity, or bird food. And it's your call. And as we said, I believe three weeks ago, made the same point. Jesus said that 2,000 years ago. And if that's not grace, I'm really not sure what is. I don't give my kids 2,000 years to shape up. (laughs) Praise the Lord that though the eagles, though the vultures, and the word can go either way, eagles or vultures, though they will gather where the bodies lie dead, praise the Lord that we know right now and as Isaiah prophesied in Isaiah 40:31, those who wait for the Lord will gain new strength. They will mount up with wings like the eagles. They will run and not get tired. They will walk and not become weary. So don't go through the flood of tribulation like Noah. Be safe from it like Lot. Don't suffer the fires of judgment. And don't look back like Lot's wife. Let's look forward to our salvation in Jesus. Amen? Amen. Lord, we come to You this morning.
recognizing how shall we be saved if we neglect so great a salvation. You have given us Your grace. You showed us through Jesus and through that absolutely remarkable sacrifice. You showed us through His willingness to be beaten. You showed us through a Jesus who would allow a crown of thorns to be driven into His skull. You showed us, Lord, through a Jesus who is forced through the streets of Jerusalem dragging His own cross before He would ride glorious into Jerusalem again. And Father, if that doesn't move the information from the head to the heart, I don't know what else will. So Father, this morning we preach Jesus Christ and Him crucified. We preach the love of God. We preach Your grace and Your mercy. And we just ask that You will move from our heads into our hearts. And that You will reside there. And Lord, if there's anyone among us this morning who has not made a decision to give their heart to You, I pray that that moment has come. And that it's now. And if that's You, would You pray with me in Your heart to the Lord. Lord, I pray that You'll take over my heart. I want to be in a relationship with You. I believe all this information, but I want my relationship with You to be more. Fill me with Your Holy Spirit. Forgive me, Lord, of all my sin and my transgression before You. Wash me clean by the blood that You sacrificed. Because You gave Your life for me, Lord, I give my life to You. And Father, I pray You will give us eyes to never look back, but to be rescued. We pray that we have strength to stand in that day. In Jesus' name, Amen.